Dirty Bird Podcast contains foul language and is not appropriate for young fledglings. Listener discretion is advised. Our intro music is brought to you by Ricky Pistone, aka Dick Piston. And our outro music is brought to you by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. Are you looking for a podcast today? With ornithology and humor you crave? Well, I know all these guys and it's birds they like. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're just a couple guys who really like birds. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're pretty dirty, but they really like birds. Hello, and welcome to Dirty Bird Podcast, a podcast that's serious about birds, but nothing else. In each episode, I pick a bird species and tell you all about it. I read all the research articles, dive into their life histories, bring you all the cool information. Um, Today's bird is a really cool bird, the American woodcock. This bird was suggested by Dream Roo. Um, thank you for sending in this uh, suggestion. This was a really fun episode to research, and I hope you guys like it. This is a pretty amazing bird. Thanks to everyone that's been uh, suggesting um, birds for me to cover. I love listener-suggested episodes. Um, love bringing you guys what you want to hear. Um, as always, I appreciate you know feedback on the show and, and writing in and sending messages, letting me know uh, if you like it, and... Um, also, please, 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 y'all, you know, uh, promote the Dirty Bird brand. Um, leave some reviews on iTunes. Let me know if you want some free stickers. I'll send you free Dirty Bird stickers you can put wherever you want, give to your bird friends, and, and help spread the Dirty Bird love. I'm recording today, as usual, from First Landing State Park on my little island in the swamp. On an island in the swamp. <laughs> um, it's a pretty cold day pretty breezy so you'll probably hear uh you know some wind blowing through the trees maybe some branches falling but hopefully we also hear some birds so i'm just going to start off with the name of the american woodcock because i mean it's it's obviously a pretty funny name woodcock um (laughs) its scientific name is scolopax minor so scolopax that's literally latin for woodcock um and uh you know Latin with the Romans, they stole most of their stuff from um, ancient Greek, you know, so um, the ancient Greek word um, ascolopus also uh, seems to refer to woodcock, but the etymology is a little bit uncertain. Ascolopus can be broken down into a couple Greek words. You can break it down into scoli and opus. Uh, This means skewed-eyed, scoli skewed, opus eyes. As we'll talk later on in the show, woodcocks have some very uniquely positioned eyes. Uh, they literally have eyes in the back of their head, so skew-eyed could have been the, the Greek word for it. But uh, a possible other um, variation on uh, you know where this ancient Greek word came from, um, ascalopas, it could have come from scallops, 
which uh, was used to refer to moles and means dig-faced. Uh, and, you know, when we talk about the feeding of the woodcock, this will make sense because uh, woodcocks have a habit of probing into the ground in search of worms. So, not sure, you know, whether it's skew-eyed or dig-face. Um, <laughs> both of those don't sound very complimentary, but uh, definitely both of them seem to refer to some habits of the woodcock. And then that species name minor, that's just to kind of separate it from the Eurasian woodcock, which is a little bigger. The Eurasian woodcock gets like species names like rusticolor or something. It's not major. Um, uh, that would make too much sense, of course. But <laughs> so minor, it's just, you know, it's smaller than the Eurasian woodcock. So not a very exciting species name. But the common name, woodcock, so much fun to say. Um, that common name comes from an Old English um, word referring to a bird of the woods. Um, there's actually another like pretty cool fact hidden in here. Um, so uh, the cock in uh, the dog breed Cocker Spaniel, that actually refers to woodcocks. Um, Cocker Spaniels were bred to hunt and flush out woodcocks. That's, that's crazy. I never even thought about like where Cocker, you know, comes from in the Cocker Spaniel, but yep, it's because they were, they were woodcock hunting dogs. Um, apparently Eurasian woodcocks are notoriously easy to catch. Like sometimes people would even catch them by hand. Um, you know, they're, they're a ground bird as we'll talk about. And I guess, you know, if you sneak up on them, then they just kind of sit there on the ground relying on their camouflage and, and you can just grab them. So, um, woodcock historically was used as an insult for calling someone stupid. There's a couple other really cool nicknames uh, for the woodcock. Um, when Dream Row referred this, uh, you know, asked me to do this episode, she specifically mentioned Timberdoodle, you know, as being one of her favorite birds. So Timberdoodle um, is another uh, name for woodcocks. Um, also Labrador Twister is another nickname you'll hear them called. Uh, both these kind of have similar origins. They refer to the spiral courtship flight of the male. We'll, we'll talk more about that later. Uh, doodle and Twister, you know, Timberdoodle, Labrador Twister, that both refers to the spiral um, that they do in that courtship ritual. And then they can be found in the woods, so Timberdoodle. Um, and this bird's range, its breeding range, does include Labrador in Canada, so that's how you get Labrador Twister. Um, I also saw that Timberdoodle might just be a variation on woodcock with timber replacing wood and doodle replacing cock. Um, you know, as in like cock-a-doodle-doo, you know, like that a rooster does. Um, uh, but I don't know. I like the timber doodle as like a, a doodly squiggly line, you know, uh, being similar to what its courtship flight is like. They're also called bog suckers. <laughs> um, this is pretty self-explanatory. These birds can be found probing the soft ground in forested bogs uh, with their bills. Um, it looks like they're kind of sucking at the ground with their straw-like bill. I feel like... Uh, you know, First Landing State Park would probably be pretty good, you know, timberdoodle habitat, um, possibly during the winter time. I've, I've never seen them, but uh, they're, they're pretty well camouflaged. But I'll, uh, I'll kind of talk about their habitat and range in a second here. They also are nicknamed hokum poke. Um, this one sounds really weird, but it's a uh, pretty simple once you break it down. Um, it's it's pretty much similar to bog sucker. Um, hokum means nonsense, sort of like hocus pocus, hokum, um, and it refers to how these birds are found poking around swampy, boggy ground that appears to be of low quality soil um, to the agriculturally focused humans. They're like, why would this bird want to hang out in a swamp? That swamp sucks. It's hokum. Um, why are they poking around in the hokum, you know? Uh, they have another nickname, um, Bekas or Bekasi. Um, it, it's, uh, 
I couldn't find much on the origin. It seems like it's the French word for woodcock, um, and it's likely what early French settlers and also the Creole residents of Louisiana referred to woodcocks as. And finally, another nickname is bog snipe. Um, as we'll learn later in the evolution section, um, woodcocks are related to snipes, and they, and they look pretty similar. Um, so, you know, they're a snipe of the bogs of the swampy forests. So, bog snipe. Those are all so much fun to say. I think timber doodle is definitely my favorite. So just to describe these birds, you're probably unlikely to have seen a woodcock um, unless like you've been walking through a field and, and flushed it or walking in the woods and flushed it and seen it fly away. Um, they're primarily ground dwelling birds um, and they are superbly camouflaged to blend in with the forest floor. Um, their coat is mottled with browns, blacks, and grays. They are about the size of a robin, but they have much plumper bodies. Their small heads, short tails, and small wings give them an almost ball-like appearance. Their most prominent feature is their long bill that looks like a big straw. If you get a good look at them, you'll also notice that their eyes are set really far back in their heads, much more towards the back of their head than the front. It, it really looks weird. Um, honestly, like my first thought looking at them, it looks like someone was like putting together a model of a bird and put the, you know, the head on backwards and the beak on the wrong side. Um, we'll talk about these wonky far back set eyes a little later. If you see them flying, you'll notice their wings are short, broad, and round, and their underparts are a buffed red color. They do have sexual dimorphism, with the females being slightly larger than the males. And it's really hard to tell them apart in the field. You know, if you see a, a woodcock, you're, you're not going to know whether it's male or female just looking at it. But um, researchers um, will use their bill length and the width of their primary feathers to differentiate the genders. Um, females have longer bills um, at two and three quarters of an inch long. Their range pretty much covers all of eastern North America and also the, the Midwest to a, a degree. Um, their breeding range is in the northern U.S. and southern Canada, extending as far west as Minnesota and around the Great Lakes. Their breeding range doesn't extend much farther south than New England. Um, the exception to this is the Appalachian Mountains, where the southern part of its breeding range extends into West Virginia, including the beautiful Canaan Valley. Uh, sort of similar to our rough grouse episode, uh, you know, with their uh, their breeding range kind of covering uh, mostly, you know, the northern U.S., but the, the mountains, you know, since up in the mountains it's a little colder, they're able to stretch down um, uh, along the Appalachian Mountains, too. Um, overwintering, though, um, these, these are migratory birds, so they do migrate, um, and when they overwinter, their range goes all the way down to northern Florida and as far west as eastern Texas. There's sort of two populations, uh, at least from a wildlife management perspective. Populations are split between an eastern and a central group. These two groups use different flyways when they migrate. The eastern one goes along the Atlantic coast, and the central fly group uh, goes down along the Mississippi to migrate. They are short-distance migrants, and their migration overlaps and leapfrogs a lot. So, like, you know, one flying from Minnesota might not go all the way down south. Like, he may, like, kind of stop, um, you know, in, in a state before that. And um, so, you know, he might stop, and then another woodcock might be migrating and, you know, fly over him and, and keep going down until he gets to the Gulf Coast. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not like a very like set migration, like every single woodcock flies all the way down south to the, the Gulf Coast. Um, they, they sort of leapfrog and, and we'll talk about, uh, you know, their, their migration. It's, it's 
pretty lazy. <laughs> they, they take it slow. They have a good little time. You know, these are small birds with small little wings. They're not the best flyers. So, uh, you know, their migration is pretty chill. And they're pretty late in their migration too. It's like September, December that they're, you know, starting to fly down. Like a, a lot of other birds have already left, you know, for the fall, like in August, September. But nah, they kind of stick around and wait till it gets real cold. And they're like, all right, all right, time for our vacay south. Um, on their wintering grounds are a little bit segregated into those two um, populations. The um, Appalachian Mountains act as a physical barrier and for the most part prevent the western population from crossing over to the southeast. Um, instead, the Appalachian Mountains kind of funnel them towards the Gulf Coast states. This isn't a hard and fast rule though. Um, woodcocks will sometimes start in the Midwest and then end up on the East Coast and vice versa. As far as the habitat that you're going to find them in, um, these are birds of successional forests. So these are not, you know, mature forests, you know, that the trees are like 40, 50, 60 years old. Um, these are trees that are starting to grow back into an area. Um, I saw um, one stat that said that uh, they seem to prefer areas with trees less than 30 years old. They prefer deciduous forests over coniferous forests. Um, in fact, they're very rarely ever found in coniferous forests. But they're not strictly like a, a woodland bird, you know, even though they're called woodcock. Um, they like a mixture of habitat, um, you know, where they're at. They like a mixture of forests, grasslands, and shrubs. Uh, they need some open grassland in their habitat because this is where they roost. Um, it's also important for their courtship displays. It can be important for feeding. That's sometimes where there's a lot of worms. Uh, so they really prefer a mixture. Uh, another cool fact about woodcocks is that they commute. Uh, in general, they spend their days in the cover of the forest, and at night they will roost in fields and forest openings. And there can be a pretty like predictable pattern to, to how they move. Um, you know, researchers have found that they, you know, they'll specifically bed down um, in, a, in a field, you know, in a, in a certain area, and then, you know, come daytime, they, they move straight to the forest, and it's very predictable in their patterns. Birch and aspen seem to be some of their favorite trees. Um, these are some of the you know first trees to grow back in an area. Um, aspen especially has a pretty intricate root system that allows it to very quickly repopulate an area after it's been cleared. You know via this is a logging or a fire. Um, so these are early successional trees, and these are what woodcocks seem to like. Uh, one of the reasons why they like deciduous forests over coniferous is, you know, deciduous trees, they drop a lot of leaves that turn into nice, rich soil that supports their favorite food, earthworms. They're a little less picky um, about their habitat when they're migrating. They'll inhabit areas with more mature oak or they'll, uh, you know, hang out in some pine forest when they're, when they're migrating. But during the breeding season, they're definitely more deciduous, early successional forests with some fields. Let's jump into their vocalizations also, because I, I just love how these, uh, these birds sound. Um, most of their vocalizations occur on their breeding grounds. The male makes a very distinct nasally peent call. I honestly think it, it kind of sounds like an insect, you know, when you're far away. Um, but if you're up close listening, um, you'll notice he precedes each pinch call with another gurgly little call. Um, this is called a tuco. Um, this sound doesn't travel as far as the pinch, so you really have to be close to appreciate this. 
When a male is in flight doing his courtship display, he will make a series of liquid chirps. And if a male encroaches on another breeding male's territory, um, they will utter an angry cackle sound at each other. Similar to a lot of other ground birds, you know, think about like the rough grouse, um, think about like doves that feed on the ground. Um, when they're flushed, um, their fast beating wings will make a whistling sound. As far as their food, you know, it's worms, worms, worms. Um, earthworms make up 60 to 90% of their diet. They also eat some other insects, you know, grubs, larvae, caterpillars. Rarely they'll eat seeds. I mean, really, these are, these are earthworm-specific birds. They feed by probing at the ground with their long bills to grab earthworms. Their bill is covered with dense nerve endings that help them feel their way around underground. They also have a special muscle attachment um, at their bill tip that allows them... Whoa. Some... I don't know if you heard that thump. Some big branch just fell nearby. Oh, dang. Should have worn a helmet out here. <laughs> Um, so they have that special muscle attachment at their bill tip. Um, this allows them to open just their bill tip while underground to pinch up worms. So even though, you know, when they probe in the ground, it looks like their bill's closed, they're opening just that tip, like, uh, kind of like some little pincers to, to grab up the worms. And finally, they have a long, rough tongue that helps them grasp onto worms and yank them out of the ground. If you've ever dug for worms, like for fishing or, I don't know, just as a, a kid having fun, um, you'll know they're like surprisingly strong. When they're in their holes, they're really hard to pull out. Um, so their tongue is pretty powerful to be able to yank these worms out. And just keep those bill adaptations I talked about, you know, in the back of your mind. I'm going to circle back to them in the evolution section. They may also use their sense of hearing to locate worms. Um, this is similar to robins. Robins, you'll kind of see tilt their head when they're looking at the ground. They're listening for kind of worms crawling around there. Um, woodcocks may, may also do this. But probably their coolest feeding tactic um, is a little dance that they do. Uh, you, you guys got to go look up uh, videos of, of woodcocks feeding. And if you've already seen them, you know what I'm talking about. When they walk, they kind of bob. Like, it looks like they're doing some kind of, like, two-step. Like, they'll, like, bob back and forth on their bodies while they're walking. And they'll take a step forward and then take a step back and then two steps forward, you know. It's like they're doing the cha-cha slide or something. <laughs> um, and uh, they'll also kind of double tap their feet on the ground too. This, you know, looks hilarious, but actually um, they're thought to be causing vibrations in the ground to lure worms up to the surface. Earthworms have an innate instinct to tunnel to the surface when they sense ground vibrations. This is possibly a method to escape burrowing moles. So uh, this phenomenon is, you know, utilized by the woodcock. Um, it's well known among fishermen. Um, 
they sometimes lure worms to the surface by stomping on the ground or dragging a stick across a tree um, in a practice called grunting. Um, I've, uh, I've never done this, but um, I don't know. It's, it's kind of funny. So apparently woodcocks, they'll do grunting to, uh, to bring worms to the surface. And there's actually other birds that do this too. Um, Kiwis of New Zealand will, you know, create vibrations on the ground with their feet and also kagus of Caledonia. Um, they will stomp the ground uh, to lure worms to the surface. But one sense they're probably not using much uh, to locate worms is the sense of sight. Because those eyes, remember, they're way far back on their head. Um, they've evolved over time to have eyes that sit farther and farther back. Um, and this allows them to scan for predators that might be sneaking up on them while they have their heads down, you know, buried in the ground probing for worms. Their eyes are actually so far back on their head um, that the woodcock's ear is in front of its eyeballs. Isn't that nuts? <laughs> their brain has had to adapt uh, to this change. In humans and also in, in most birds, um, the brain is split up into three major parts. The cerebrum, which is the biggest part and in the front of the brain. The cerebellum, which is like kind of a mini brain. It's attached to the back. It helps with balance. And then the brain stem, you know, you're like your lizard brain. It does the breathing, you know, heartbeat, all that kind of stuff. Um, and it's just below the cerebrum and right on top of the spinal cord. But in woodcocks, um, the brain has had to sort of rotate to match up with those backwards eyes, those forward ears. They also have nostrils that sit way close up on their bill by their face. Um, so in woodcocks, the cerebellum is actually sandwiched between the cerebrum and the spinal cord. Um, in essence, the brain has done a little like half flip to accommodate the woodcock's crazy anatomy. And you may not think worms are very nutritious, but apparently they have a lot of protein and fat content. Um, and the woodcocks really fatten up on worms um, before their migration. Uh, I read a study done in New England from September to November that found that their fat stores increased by half a gram per day in that frantic fall feeding period leading up to migration. Woodcocks, in fact, may eat up to half their body weight in worms a day as they fatten up for winter. So let me go ahead and uh, talk about their breeding. Um, I'm going to start off with, you know, the most amazing thing about their breeding, which is their courtship display. Um, their courtship display um, occurs in fields um, or forest clearings at dawn and dusk. Uh, there's only one male per clearing that is, uh, you know, doing this display. So um, that's why they'll be pretty competitive um, over these forest clearings. They can sometimes be few and far to come between. Um, so uh, that's, that's why they'll be pretty defensive um, of where they do this courtship display. The male will start off his courtship display by giving a paint call to attract the attention of females. And then he'll fly 200 to 300 feet in the air. Um, and as he comes down, he'll gracefully spiral while emitting that liquid flight call. Interestingly, males start this courtship display while still on their wintering grounds and continue it on stopover sites during migration. There's a big overlap in the migratory and breeding ranges. Remember, I kind of said they do a pretty like leapfrog migration. So, you know, one woodcock may be overwintering on a place that is the breeding ground of another woodcock. Or another woodcock may show up on its breeding ground and there's some woodcocks there that are just stopping through on their way of migration. 
And because of that, um, males, you know, they don't only do their display, you know, once they get to their final breeding ground. They'll do their display if they're on a wintering ground or they're on a stopover site and there happens to be a field that, uh, you know, they can do it in. And they're like, hmm, there's some breeding females around. Let me let me go ahead and shoot my shot. So it kind of leads to, you know, a very interesting pairing. Like, you know, this this may just be a male moving through, but, you know, a female's here. She's ready to have a nest, ready to have babies. She likes his uh, his stuff on his downward spiral display. So, you know, uh, one male may even be able to mate with several females as he, as he does his migration. Uh, that conspicuous courtship ritual is also how woodcocks are surveyed. Uh, this technique is called singing ground surveys. Uh, people basically go out in the spring and count the number of singing and displaying males there are in order to estimate woodcock populations. When I was doing research for this episode, so much stuff was about these singing ground surveys. Um, and also, I'll touch on this later, but so much about, you know, woodcock uh, management. Um, as we'll talk about, they are, you know, birds that are hunted, and so... Um, a lot of the focus on Wilcox is, hey, how do we create the best habitat so, you know, we can hunt these birds? So, you know, when a female um, mates with a male after he's done his courtship display and she liked what she saw female um woodcocks are called hens <laughs> which is great um i mean i guess it makes sense you know because a male chicken's a cock this is a woodcock maybe they're wood hens um so the hens usually nest not too far from the singing grounds that they made it on usually within 150 yards um, their nest isn't anything special they just find a place that seems protected by shrubs briars or moist bottomland and lay their eggs directly onto the leaf litter they may rim their nests with twigs or pine needles, but that's about as fancy as it gets. Females are nearly invisible when they're brooding their eggs. Uh, they blend in perfectly. They lay one egg a day uh, for usually a total of four eggs. And while the eggs are only about one inch by 1.5 inches, this is actually pretty large in comparison to the bird's size. The eggs also blend in with the ground. Um, they are a buff red or light brown color with dark spots. The breeding success of woodcocks is pretty dependent on weather conditions. Um, if snow is still on the ground late into the spring, this appears to negatively affect their breeding success. Um, this is thought to be because, you know, woodcocks lay their eggs directly on the ground. If there's snow, their eggs are going to be too cold. Um, or the female is going to be forced to delay laying her eggs and wait for the snow to melt, which, you know, any delay in, in the breeding season can just cause problems. Man, the wind is uh, pretty fierce out here today. I think maybe the birds are kind of hunkering down from the, the cold and the wind. I'm still hopeful maybe, you know, some of our friends, the titmice and woodpeckers, you know, come around in their mixed flock, but... Hope the wind's not bothering you guys too much either. Speaking of wind and cold, um, breeding success of uh, woodcocks is dependent on weather conditions. If snow is still on the ground late in the spring, uh, this negatively affects their breeding success. You know, they nest on the ground. If there's snow, their eggs might get too cold. Um, also, the female woodcock, if there's snow, she might delay um, her breeding and her laying of her eggs, uh, which, you know, that can just uh, put a hamper on, on everything. Um, while rain during the early breeding season is bad for woodcock breeding, apparently rain during the juvenile period is actually beneficial. I, I'm not sure of the, the reason for that. Um, other than camouflage, uh, mother woodcocks, hens, uh, do have another strategy to help defend their nests. Um, 
Uh, you know, they are in the shorebird family, like I, I said earlier, related to snipes. Um, and uh, a lot of shorebirds, you know, you may have heard of will uh, fake a broken wing to try to lure predators away from their nests. And um, uh, female woodcocks will do the same thing. If uh, a predator approaches their nest, they'll act like they have a broken wing. They'll utter this little pitiful squeal sound to try to, you know, make it sound like they're really injured. And, and so that the predator follows them and leaves their nest alone. They incubate their eggs for 19 to 22 days. And although they, you know, only lay one egg a day, so there's a little bit of, uh, you know, developmental delay in, in the egg they lay last, um, all their eggs usually hatch on the same day. Um, instead of the chicks, you know, pecking a hole with a egg tooth, um, like some other birds do and emerging from their egg, their eggs actually split up the middle, uh, sort of like a box or a chest opening up. Um, which is really bizarre. I don't think I've ever studied a bird that, that does this. It kind of makes me think of like, I don't know, like, like an alien movie where the eggs just like burst open. Um, the chicks are pretty cute too. You should totally look up pictures. Um, they look kind of like a baby duck, you know, with that like, um, you know, fuzzy yellow fur, but also with some black coloring. Um, except instead of that, you know, cute little flat duck bill, they have that long straw bill. And their eyes are almost at the back of their head. <laughs> it's a little bit like a so ugly it's cute. So when their chicks hatch, they're precochial. Um, this means that they can see and move around right from the start. The mom feeds them for a few days um, before they learn the ropes of worm wrangling for themselves. She also broods them at night for the first few weeks of life. But within two weeks, the chicks can fly short distances and by four weeks they have adult plumage. By six weeks, the little timber doodles are all grown up and ready to head out on their own. This is kind of similar to our rough grouse. You know, these ground uh, breeding birds, like once they hatch, they got to get move in and start trying to take care of themselves pretty quickly because, uh, you know, they're, they're easy pickings for predators. The woodcock breeding strategy appears to be a pretty good one. Um, I read a statistic from the Pennsylvania Fish and Wildlife Service that said 60 to 75% of woodcock nests are successful. That's really good, especially for a ground breeding bird. You know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, once the breeding season's over, they kind of stick around on their breeding ground for a while. They're not in a huge rush to, to head off. September, December rolls around. And they're, you know, they're kind of, you know, lazy migrants. Um, I, I read a study of the Western population of woodcocks. It found that they migrated um, 700 to 1600 kilometers um, over a leisurely 15 to 48 days. So, you know, they're not like our bar-tailed godwit, you know, that's traveling, you know, thousands and thousands of miles in a, in a single go. They're like, they fly a little bit, they stop, hang out a couple days, fly a little bit, stop. <laughs> Um, those migrations take a while because they spend days to weeks on their stopover grounds. Um, they're especially leisurely during their spring migration, which is, is, is totally bizarre. This is vastly different from other birds. Um, you know, some other birds, like their fall migration, they may, you know, uh, do pretty slow because there's not a big rush you get on your, you know, wintering grounds. But come spring, you're like, I got to get there. I got to breed. I got to get my territory. Um, Woodcocks appear to be the exact opposite. Like, they do a little bit faster of a fall migration, but their spring migration is especially slow. Um, sort of my reasoning for this is, you know, remember woodcocks, you know, even while they're migrating, they may still breed. The males will still display on those migrating grounds. So, you know, I feel like migration for other birds is like a very sucky, like, 
all-out like physical test of endurance for for woodcocks it's like a fun like swingers party they're like hey let's stop in this ground migration ground and hey let's breed yeah all right let's move to the next one all right we're in no rush <laughs> um also those stopover grounds they'll sometimes just stay and hang out in them if it's like a very cold spring and they are you know they don't want to go to their breeding grounds too early when there's snow like who wants to do that so um, especially if there's bad weather, they'll stop over um, and wait for a couple weeks for uh, conditions to get better on their breeding grounds. Their estimated breeding population is estimated to be at around 3.5 million. Unfortunately, um, they have been in decline, uh, about 1% of the population in decline every year since 1968. This is especially true in the eastern U.S. Um, that's where the highest rates of decline are occurring. Um, the western Great Lakes region appears to have a pretty stable woodcock population. Um, this is no surprise that the east coast, you know, is declining faster than the central. Um, I mean, you know, the U.S. east coast, there's just so much urbanization going on, so much clearing of forest. Um, so it, it makes sense that uh, there's a lot of habitat destruction. And that's what is really driving the decline of woodcocks is habitat destruction. Um, there's really not much early successional forests anymore. Uh, there's multiple reasons for this. Um, so wildfire suppression, beaver overhunting, and then urbanization. Um, you know, prior like farmland was like a, a pretty good like woodcock um, uh, habitat, but now farms are being turned into suburbs. Also changes in farming practices too. Um, have uh, affected woodcocks. Um, apparently, uh, you know, there used to be tilling practices uh, that would create furrows. Um, and this created kind of a dynamic landscape when you create furrows to, to put your crops in. There's a lot of like hilliness to the field, increased surface area, area for, um, you know, worms to hang out in, area to kind of hide from predators. Um, but uh, apparently now, like, no-till farming um, is, is more and more popular. And um, this creates a flatter landscape, this, which is uh, less suitable for woodcocks. Also, um, public land, too. Um, you know, like, I, you know, I love national parks. I think I talk about this in my Rough Grouse episode, too. I, you know, I love national parks, national forests, protected land. Um, but usually that land is uh, all, you know, allowed to turn into mature forests, which is, you know, great for animals that need mature forests. But, um, you know, not great for woodcocks. Uh, you know, now these mature protected forests, there's no wildfires going on there. Um, and, uh, you know, none of the um, other natural things that uh, created early successional forest for the, the woodcocks. Um, so mature forests, you know, that's, that might as well be just a dead zone for a woodcock. They can't, they can't live there. The average lifespan for a woodcock in the wild is about two years. Um, the oldest known wild woodcock uh, lived to six years. So these are not very long-lived birds. Um, uh, as we'll talk about, almost everything, you know, loves to eat a woodcock. There may be more habitat areas opening up for woodcocks, but uh, this might not be, you know, the best news um, because this is due to destruction of native grasslands in the Great Plains. Um, the Great Plains once acted kind of as a natural barrier to the American woodcock. Uh, you know, those, those natural grasslands uh, and prairies um, were not suitable to woodcocks, but now with, you know, human suburbs and, and parks and uh, planting trees, um, it's changing that native ecosystem. And yes, it's, it's good for woodcocks to move in, but not great for grassland species. 
um, also the harvesting of a lot of the Canadian um, northern conifer forests has cleared potential uh, uh, habitat for woodcocks. So on, on that note, I'll kind of dive into some of the, uh, you know, man-made um, uh, bad things for, for woodcocks, man-made threats. Um, so pollution, of course. So, you know, these are birds that eat worms. What do worms eat? Dirt. And, um, you know, while woodcocks are probing for the worms, they end up inadvertently eating dirt. Um, apparently 10% of their diet is actually uh, accidental dirt that they've ingested. Um, and then the, the worms eat dirt too. So um, this puts them at high risk of poisoning uh, from contaminated soil. I actually found a pretty cool statistic. 30% of earthworms total body mass is dirt. Um, so, cause you know, they're just full of dirt that they're digesting. Um, so, you know, woodcocks really take in a lot of soil and any toxins that are in there quickly build up in the woodcocks uh, body. Uh, heavy metal contamination um, is, a, is a pretty big concern. Um, some of this is coming from industrial pollution. Um, also some is coming from lead shot. Uh, a study conducted in Connecticut found that nearly 100% of woodcock liver and kidneys had biological significant levels of cadmium. 24% of livers had significant levels of selenium and 61% of adult woodcocks had lead levels that were above levels of 20 micrograms per gram. 20 micrograms per gram is a huge amount of lead. Um, in humans, we usually measure um, lead in micrograms per deciliter. Um, I did like a conversion, um, and this would equate to 2,000 micrograms per deciliter, that 20 micrograms per gram, um, which is just insane amount of lead. For reference, at levels of 45 micrograms per deciliter in humans, you're going to get admitted to a hospital. You're going to get special drugs to bind and eliminate lead from your body. Woodcocks may be running around with 2,000 micrograms per deciliter. Like, they're just like, lead poisoning's terrible. Um, you know, I talk about this a ton in a lot of my episodes. Uh, uh, the bald eagle episode, I think I, I talk about it a lot. Um, but uh, some good news for woodcocks is mercury levels don't appear to be elevated in them at all. Um, this isn't surprising. Mercury is usually in watersheds, and, and you know they're not they're not feeding on marine worms. It's uh, the earthworms. I'll talk about hunting in a second here, but um, you know, just one point here, like. You know, it matters that the woodcocks are, are being poisoned because they're hunted for both sport and then also people eat them too. And if a woodcock is poisoned by lead or heavy metals, whoever is eating them is going to get exposed also. So let me talk about some of the, you know, more natural threats to woodcocks. Uh, you know, what likes to eat them and what can uh, and result in their, you know, natural demise in the wild. Um, I'll then touch on their conservation um, and then finally end with evolution. So I mentioned earlier how late snow cover and lots of rain during the breeding season uh, can negatively affect woodcocks. Uh, I actually read a pretty cool thesis paper out of Michigan Flint University where a master's in biology student measured levels of a chemical called beta-hydroxybutyrate in woodcocks during a cold spring year with late snow cover and compared it to a warm spring year with no snow cover. Beta-hydroxybutyrate will sound familiar if you're in the medical field or a diabetic because this is the chemical us doctors use to check and see if someone is in DKA or diabetic ketoacidosis. Um, basically, it's made when the body is breaking down fats and proteins for energy instead of glucose. 
This thesis study found that male woodcocks in Michigan had higher levels of beta-hydroxybutyrate during the spring uh, that had late snow cover than the warm spring, indicating that they were basically starving and having to burn their fat stores for fuel. Summer droughts can also be detrimental to woodcocks as they reduce earthworm availability. And woodcocks are not the strongest flyers. As I said earlier, they have those short little round wings, and they can be victims of weather events such as thunder and snowstorms during migration. Building collisions can be particularly lethal. Um, woodcocks only fly about 50 feet in the air during their migration. And, you know, there's a lot of buildings that are, you know, five plus stories, so they're right on woodcock level. Strong winds from storms can especially blow them into buildings. Uh, there are also, um, you know, I didn't see a ton about this, but uh, there can be some diseases that affect them. Um, I saw that there was a real virus outbreak in Virginia and New Jersey that caused die-offs of the affected populations. Um, real virus in humans causes, like, really, really bad diarrhea. So I don't know if that's how the woodcocks die. That sounds like a, a terrible death. You know, Oregon Trail, you, you died from dysentery. Um, really cool right now, there is a wood thrush uh, that perched uh, nearby. I don't think he's going to sing. He's just kind of like uh, moving through the brush, maybe trying to find some insects to eat with all this wind going on. Uh, and like I said, everything likes to eat woodcocks, um, especially mammalian predators. Um, in a study that followed mortality events in radio-tagged woodcocks across the Northeast, 56% of predator deaths came from weasels and raccoons. Uh, raptors only accounted for about 25% of predator kills to woodcocks. Makes sense, you know, they're a ground bird. They're easy for mammalian predators to sneak up on and grab. Uh, speaking of mammalian predators, there's kind of a, a cool parasite that, you know, uses woodcocks as a, uh, as a host. Um, so they're called sarcosis. Um, they have a two-host life cycle. Um, their definitive host is carnivorous animals, you know, woodcock, or, you know, uh, raccoons or, or weasels. In carnivores, they live inside the GI tract, um, and these carnivores will poop out their eggs. Those eggs are then inadvertently eaten by herbivores who will get infected. Um, so this is the sneaky part. In these herbivores, the sarcocyst will infect the muscle tissue. That's why they're called sarcocyst. Sarco is, is muscle. They'll infect the muscle tissue, and, you know, that's where their um, eggs will be. And then this way, if the herbivore is killed and eaten by a carnivore, the carnivore will eat the meat and get infected. Um, and then the cycle continues. Then, uh, you know, the carnivore is infected. It goes in their GI tract. They poop it out. Herbivore eats it. goes in the muscle. Cycle continues. <laughs> um, woodcocks seem to be particularly prone to sarcosis. Um, you know, this makes sense. They, you know, forage in the dirt and they're eating a lot of dirt and that dirt could have animal poop in it. Um, and so then they ingest the sarcosis. Humans apparently are not immune to sarcosis, but the good news is fully cooking meat will kill those cysts. So, you know, like I said, these are birds of early successional forests. So, you know, historically natural disasters like storms, landslides, and wildfires would help create the patchy young growth forest conditions that woodcocks thrive on. So, you know, as I said earlier, woodcocks are an early successional forest species. Um, historically, these environments were created by natural disasters like storms, landslides, and wildfires. Um, those would help create the patchy young growth forest conditions that woodcocks thrive on. Nowadays, wildlife management and conservation of woodcocks is largely driven by their role as a game bird. 
they are a pretty popular bird to hunt in the 2015 to 2016 hunting season 200,200 woodcocks were bagged by hunters and i think that stat actually was just from you know one of their con their conservation areas remember like they kind of split it up into the uh, midwest and the east coast I, I can't remember which one that actually referred to but i also saw other stats that said you know up to a million or a million and a half um, woodcocks are harvested all across their range you know including canada and the u.s each year so they're a very popular um, uh, hunting bird and you know just to to talk about hunting i know uh you know a variety of people you know are listening to the show i know some listeners may be against hunting but you know i'm all for responsible hunting um of course my gut reaction is like oh don't kill the birds but you know in all the research i've done um especially my grouse episode you know please check that out uh, you learn that all the money from hunting licenses, it, it goes in a long way in protecting game birds and also protecting birds that aren't hunted too, and, and just wildlife that aren't hunted in general. Yes, hunters kill some individual birds, um, but the last thing that the hunters want to see is the populations to decrease or to go extinct. Um, hunters also kind of serve like free scientists because they report on bird population numbers and trends, um, you know, both in reporting their kills and then also kind of just what they've noticed while they're out in the field. You know, this is a complicated relationship. Um, the wildlife management of woodcocks were catering the environment towards one species that humans like to hunt um, at the expense of maybe some other bird species. But that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> Anyway, some of the ways that wildlife managers help create woodcock habitat is through selective timbering, clearing of underbrush, and selective trimming of tree branches. Uh, they also do prescribed burns, too. Um, from what I've read, a few grasslands um, amongst the forest is vital, um, as these are needed for the display grounds for the woodcocks. From what I read, um, overall, land that's geared towards helping woodcocks uh, does help a variety of bird species because woodcocks require such a diversity in habitat to thrive. You know, they need early successional forests, they need some grasslands, they need some wetlands, you know, some bushes, some shrubs. So, like, you're creating a lot of habitat when you're, you know, trying to create woodcock habitat. Um, and so there's a lot of other species that are going to thrive in that, too. Um, woodcocks are termed, you know, an umbrella species. Um, this is an ecological term. When you t protect one species, it ends up indirectly protecting other species. A very important species that uh, seems to thrive in woodcock habitat is the golden-winged warbler. Um, it's found in similar habitats to woodcocks and is benefiting from the conservation efforts focused on them. There are lots and lots and lots of papers out there about wildlife management of woodcocks, you know, talking about how much land you need and, and what percentage is the grassland and what percentage is the trees and blah, 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 blah. I am not going to go in the nitty gritty of that. Um, you know, basically what I found is ideally you have about, you know, 500 acres of, of land, um, you know, which is like 200 hectares um, of land that you're managing to support like a stable woodcock population. But you certainly don't need like that much, um, you know, as little as 10 hectares or 24 acres can produce good woodcock habitat, um, especially if one of those acres within there you clear cut. If anyone listening happens to be in, you know, wildlife conservation and, and you know, uh, has had some experience with woodcock um, land management, please, please write in and, and let me know your own experience. It seems like a pretty complicated process and there's a lot of argument there, too. Holy shit, guys. It's the fox again.
Oh my god. <laughs> that is so cool. I think I got his footprints on the... Him walking, him crunching the leaves. I think I got that on the recording. I'll try. Yeah, a couple episodes ago, I was sitting here and, and the gray fox came by. And um, I must be on his game trail. Wow. <laughs> that is so cool. This little spot I am is, is right on a gray fox game trail. And yeah, he just came by. He, you know, he heard me talk and he looked over at me. And then he's like, nah, I'm going hunting. Bye. We got to come up with a name for that gray fox, folks. Uh, let me know your suggestions. All right, so let's wrap up talking about um, woodcock evolution. So, you know, the woodcock is a shorebird, like I said earlier, which is, uh, you know, kind of a, a cool, crazy fact of this show. You know, shorebirds, you always associate, of course, with water and the ocean. Uh, but this bird is found far away from those. And, you know, it's hanging out in the woods. So it's in the order Teradriformes. Um, that contains birds like gulls and puffins. Um, it actually belongs to the same family, Scolopacidae, that the bar-tailed godwit um, belongs to, which I covered a few episodes ago. And, and check out if you want to, you know, kind of learn more about shorebird evolution uh, in total. So um, I talked about the evolution of, you know, Teradriformes and um, Scolopacidae. I, I touched upon that in my puffin episode, my godwit episode, so not going to dive into depth here. Um, but just know that these are pretty old groups of birds. Um, they formed during the Cretaceous era. And while, you know, at first, you know, seeing a bird in the woods, you may not associate it with, you know, shorebirds. Um, if you see a woodcock, you know, side by side with stuff like sandpipers, godwits, curlews, which it's, you know, related to, um, it looks pretty similar. The bill and body type are just a dead giveaway. Um, remember earlier when I talked about the sensitive bill of the woodcock that it uses to feel for worms? This seems to be an early evolutionary feature of the Sculpolicidae family um, and is shared by all members. In my Godwood episode, I talked about how they use this sensitive bill, its special almost lip-like clamps on the end to gobble up marine worms. Um, the woodcock has that same feature, um, except it uses it on dry land instead of in the water. The ancestor of the woodcock was certainly a marine feeding bird, um, likely ate worms, and then started to move on to land and was like, hey, there's some pretty good worms here too. Within Scolopacidae, um, American woodcocks are part of the clade containing the two snipe genuses, Gallinago and Coencorphyra. I unfortunately don't have a ton of in-depth information about the evolutionary nuances here, um, there wasn't a ton of information out there. I actually even found one paper that said, the clades including scolopax are poorly resolved. This may reflect a bias in phylogenic studies of shorebirds. For instance, we found six source trees for Alcinae, that's, you know, the auk family, but none devoted to scolopax or Gallinago. So, yeah, like, even other researchers are saying, hey, why is no one talking about Scolopax and the snipes and, you know, trying to figure out the evolutionary relationships? I guess, you know, ox, puffins, they're, you know, they're just way more popular. You know, no one cares about the woodcock. They're, they're like the Rodney Dangerfield of uh, shorebirds. Like, they don't get no respect. Hey, <laughs> I want to eat some worms. Uh, they won't let me go to the ocean, so I'm, I'm in the forest eating worms. I, I get no respect. <laughs> <laughs> That's a terrible impression. Oh, God. <laughs> as far as the fossil record, um, early woodcock fossils pop up in the upper Miocene, um, which is about 20 million years ago. Um, this was found on Punta Nati um, off the Balearic Island coast of Spain. 
Um, it shows unmistakable woodcock features, uh, but also with a hint of that Galanago, um, you know, the snipe characteristics. So this may have been about the time they diverged about 20 million years ago and possibly um, occurred, you know, in, uh, in the old world, you know, either that's Europe or Africa, um, around the Mediterranean area. There's um, eight living species of woodcocks right now. Two of these, the American and the Eurasian woodcock, have wide ranges across their respective continents, while the other six are much more restricted. They're just like island species. There's also several extinct species that have been found in the fossil record. Um, two interesting ones are Scolopax anthonii, uh, which once lived in Puerto Rico and may have been flightless, and Scolopax brachycarpa um, of Haiti. Both of these species went extinct within the past 10,000 years, possibly paired with Native American settlement of the island. Scolopax brachycarpi um, appeared pretty widespread across Haiti and the Dominican Republic. It may have even survived until European colonization. But we all know what happens to island species when Europeans show up uh, with their cats and their rats. The woodcock range in the Americas was significantly restricted during periods of glaciation during the Pleistocene. A species of woodcock called Scolopax hutchensi uh, pops up in Florida from the late Pliocene. This is about 3 million years ago. It had larger wings compared to the modern American woodcock, um, possibly indicating it was a stronger flyer and a more migratory species. After the last glacial maximum about 20 to 30,000 years ago, American woodcocks followed the retreating glaciers north until they landed in their current breeding range. So, I mean, that's, that's really it that I have. Um, in the absence of me being able to find more specific information about woodcock evolutionary roots, um, I'm going to just speculate a bit off of that info I just gave. So, you know, the Eurasian woodcock, it has the widest range of any woodcock species. It goes all the way from Europe to Japan. Um, it's my guess that Europe, Asia, Africa, those are probably the origins of Scolopax. Um, the ancestral woodcock was likely a stronger flyer than its modern contemporaries, uh, similar to that extinct woodcock found in Florida with the larger wings. This allowed them to spread to America via Beringia, um, you know, crossing from like Siberia across Alaska, and also allowed them to colonize some of the many islands uh, that woodcock insular species are found on today. Um, similar to ratites that we've talked about in my moa and elephant bird episodes, Scolopax appear to very rapidly speciate um, once they get to an island or, or new continent. They, they very quickly um, become new species. There are no subspecies, though, of the American woodcock. Um, like I said, even though they're generally split between that central and that eastern migration route, studies show that 2 to 4% flip from one side to the other. This causes enough gene flow that no genetically distinct subspecies forms. Um, interestingly, the vast majority of these flip-floppers are from east coast switching to the central flyway. Uh, I saw one study that estimated a 5 to 1 ratio of east coast flip-floppers compared to central. I don't know, maybe, you know, the east coast is just too crowded, so, you know, they want to go move and check out middle America. Well, that's all I got for you guys on, you know, woodcocks. Um, I wish I had more on their evolution. Um, if, if you know more about it, please tell me. Um, I hope you guys learned some cool facts about this very interesting bird. Uh, if you're within their breeding range or their migratory range, try to check them out this spring. See that courtship flight. Listen out for that, you know, little meat call. Maybe if you're lucky enough, you'll get to see them dance as they, you know, drum up some worms up from the ground. 
Um, thanks for joining me. Please leave reviews. Let me know if you want free stickers. Spread the Dirty Bird love. I love doing this podcast for you guys. It you know makes my day um, every time somebody writes in. So uh, let me know what birds you want me to cover. And as always, stay dirty, fellow birdies. Dirty Bird Podcast is brought to you by me, John, with my rotating panel of guests and co-hosts. Thanks for being on the show, everybody. The Dirty Bird theme song is by Ricky Pistone. Check out his groovy and hilarious music videos on YouTube. The outro music you're listening to right now is a song New York Redneck by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. The Dirty Bird Podcast logo is by the very talented TJ Ranoski. And of course, a shout out to my beautiful wife, Lauren, who created my original logo. Check out the show notes for this episode for a full list of credits for any bird calls or sounds used in the episode. Thanks for listening. Jungle, I might get into a little rumble.